The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. From Isaiah 25, 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we exalt you, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in times of distress, a refuge from the storm and a shade from the heat. You have promised to swallow up death forever, to wipe away every tear, and to take away the rebuke of your people from all the earth. We thank you, for you have spoken, and in response, we ask that you would receive our worship now in the bond of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, and amen. We continue on in our uh, series of exhortations from Proverbs, and uh, this morning we are in Proverbs 3, verses 19 to 23. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. Where can wisdom be found? Where can you find it? In this passage, we are told that it was God's wisdom that founded the earth, that established the heavens and broke open the depths of the sea. When the snow falls, and eventually melts and evaporates and condenses into clouds and then precipitates to water the earth, you are meant to look at all of that and say, wow, God is wise. If you ate breakfast this morning, it was because of the wisdom of God in creating a world in which animals can eat and crops spring forth from the ground and eventually become your cereal, pancakes, toast, coffee, oranges, onions, eggs, butter, bacon, and all the rest. Everything we eat comes from the wisdom of God. And that is why we should give thanks before every meal. But what happens when we refuse to give thanks to God? In Romans 1, we are told that refusing to give thanks is directly linked to gross sexual sin, homosexuality, sodomy, and lesbianism. In Romans 1, 24 to 25, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth about God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So either you can worship the blessed God and live under his blessing, or you can refuse to worship and give thanks and live under his curse. Which do you want? When we refuse to give thanks, we become fools. And being fools, we stumble into every kind of sin. And so the exhortation is this. Thank God for your food. Even thank God for the snow. Thank him for the water cycle. Thank God for Jesus Christ, wisdom incarnate 
who came to save you from your rebellious ingratitude and all the rest. In everything, give thanks to him. From Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Father, we confess that we have lived blind to your wisdom in creation. We have suppressed the truth about you in unrighteousness and have been ungrateful like spoiled children, always grasping for things that don't belong to us. Forgive us our greed, our pride, our discontent. We confess our individual sins to you now in Selah. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. From Isaiah 1:19, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Saints of Christ Church, because you have confessed your sins to God, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The sermon text is taken from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bond as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans and strangers, but you have come for us in your Son, Jesus, and by his Spirit, and you speak to us in your word. So, Father, we ask now that you would apply your word to us, that you would meet us right where we are, that you would encourage us, that you would correct us, you would build us up so that we might love as you have loved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've read Hebrews 13 and will uh, reference it uh, a couple of times in this message, but um, this is not actually a, an ordinary um, message in which I'm working through the text in a straightforward way. So I'm, I'm reading that text to sort of set the theme of the message, but if you were hoping that I was going to explain to you what it means to entertain angels unawares, I'm sorry. Um, I'm probably not going to get to that, um, as important as that is. Um, the, the theme of this message, the theme of this sermon is hospitality or loving the stranger. And, and this is 
uh, one of the things uh, mentioned in this text, and I liked the way that this particular text in Hebrews 13 framed the issue. It's framed as a matter of loving the brothers. It's framed uh, in terms of remembering those in prison, remembering those who are facing adversity, but it's also framed in a context of some warnings as well. And so there's a couple of verses, particularly warning about sexual purity in the context of hospitality, in the context of loving the brothers. Paul, who I take to be the author of Hebrews, says, at the same time, be careful about some things. Be careful about Sexual purity, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Also be careful about covetousness. In the context of hospitality and loving one another, be content. Remember, God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. And in the context of hospitality, Paul urges us, the scriptures urge us, that we want to be leaning on the Lord in such a way that we say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man shall do to me, Of course, his, his meditation goes on and his exhortations go on, but uh, I think this particular place uh, where, where, where we're exhorted not to neglect hospitality, we're, not, we're exhorted not to neglect loving the stranger, remembering those in prison and those uh, facing adversity, it comes in the context of warning. It comes in the context of watch out for some temptations that come along with uh, the love of strangers. Arguably, hospitality is one of uh, the basic Christian duties. Uh, you cannot meet Jesus and then be someone who is not concerned to love other people. To know Jesus is to know a love that has met you, that has gripped you, uh, that's surprising, overwhelming, encouraging, and you want to share it. This is one of the most basic themes of the gospel. That having met Christ, you want, to, you want to introduce him to everyone. Um, having been loved by Christ, having been accepted by Christ, you have now a kind of forgiveness and love and acceptance for people who don't deserve it. Because that's the gospel. You didn't deserve it. You were, you were out in the darkness. You were hating God. You were ugly. You were shameful. And God comes for you. Not because you suddenly got your act together but surely just sheer grace because he has love for you. He has grace for you. He has forgiveness for you. He can cover your shame and he's glad to do it. So that kind of, that kind of love, when that has, that has filled you, you have that kind of love to give. You want to love others like that. It delights you to love people like that. So hospitality, loving the stranger, loving the orphan and the widow is central to the Christian faith. It's a central duty because it embodies the gospel of Jesus. It embodies the gospel of Jesus. At the same time, precisely because it does or it ought to embody the gospel, it's worth thinking through carefully so that we are not thoughtlessly embodying a false or distorted gospel. It's, it's not enough to have good intentions. It's not enough to say, well, we're just going to have lots of people over all the time and just see what happens. Well, that's, that's, again, maybe good intentions, but you need to be on the watch. It, it's, you know, Paul, again, in, in, in Hebrews 13 here says, do remember to entertain strangers, do remember to practice hospitality, 
but says, but don't do it in such a way as that's leading you or other people into fornication. Don't do it in such a way that's leading you or others into adultery. If you have a, a thriving mercy ministry, but there's sexual sin woven through it all, that's not a thriving mercy ministry. It's, it would be like having a, you know, a, some kind of medical outpost where you perform surgeries and, and give treatments for various diseases, but the whole thing is infected with syphilis. Or the whole thing is infected with some other disease. You say, but look, we're doing these surgeries. We're pulling teeth effectively, and, and they don't have toothaches anymore. And, and we, we set their broken bones, and look, their, their legs are healing up great. Yeah, and you're infecting them with the disease. That's not a successful medical outreach. And so it's not enough just to say we're going to practice hospitality. We say we want to do it in a way that's honoring to God, that's pleasing to God, that's not, as far as we, it depends upon us not spreading any further problems, but is actually being used by God to solve the problem, which is fundamentally sin. That's bringing reconciliation. So we want our hospitality that is to embody the gospel, we want it to embody the gospel rightly. We want it to tell the, the true gospel. We want it to actually be full of gospel power. So, so then what I want to do is just walk through, run through um, quickly um, a number of texts that urge us to love the stranger, that urge us to practice hospitality, root it in the Old Testament. And then I want to, uh, in sort of broad strokes, show you how the whole Bible urges us to love strangers, to love orphans and widows, to love the unlovely, but it urges us to do it in a thoughtful, careful way. So a number of texts on hospitality. These are not even, this is not all of them by any stretch. Uh, Romans 12, Paul says that Christians are to pursue hospitality Literally, the word that he actually uses in, in, in Romans 12, 13, when he says pursue hospitality, is sometimes translated in the New Testament, persecute. So you could, if you really wanted to be an extremist, you could say Paul is urging us to persecute one another with hospitality. Because of course, there's a way to do that that would be really terrible. But he's getting at the enthusiasm, the zeal. Go after people. Go after them. The lonely, the downcast, the friendless, the hungry, the widowed, the fatherless. Go after them. Find them. I mean, you know, this, it's, it's, the idea, it's the same idea. Paul, uh, when, when we call him Saul in the early chapters of Acts, who was persecuting the Christians. What's he doing on his way to Damascus? He's going to find Christians so he can throw them in jail. When Jesus interrupts him and stops him and says, stop it. And so there's a certain kind of, again, zeal, enthusiasm that Christians ought to have. Seeking out those who need to be loved, those who need to be cared for. It should, it should be kind of like that. Of course, just so long as the people around you don't have that hunted expression in their eyes. I'm using the words hospitality and love of strangers interchangeably. You may have noticed that. And that's because the Greek word for hospitality is literally love of the stranger. It's uh, xenophilia. It's the love of strangers. That's the word for hospitality. And so that's why 
we, we ought to think of it and use it interchangeably. Other passages. Peter says that we're to love one another in the church and be hospitable to one another without grumbling. 1 Peter 4, 8. Again, just notice there in passing that even there, Peter briefly, though he urges us to be hospitable, he also says, but I know in your hospitality you're going to be tempted in various ways to grumble. No grumbling. It's not hospitality if you're grumbling, if you're fussing, if you're complaining. All these dishes, all these people, all this cleanup. This, you know, why, why didn't they say more compliments? Why did they say that they were coming and then have to cancel at the last minute? That's grumbling. That's not Christian hospitality. We already talked about Hebrews 13. Another passage. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus commends the sheep who took in the stranger. For he says, when they did it unto the least of these, my brethren, they were doing it unto him. Matthew 25, 35. So again, Jesus says, the love of the stranger is, is loving me. Welcoming the stranger is welcoming me. Clothing the naked is, is ministry to me. Feeding the hungry is ministry unto me. Elders and pastors are to set an example for Christians by being hospitable. So in both, both places, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and Titus chapter 1, verse 8, where we're given qualifications for leadership. This is the kind of man who you should ordain as an elder or as a pastor in your church in both places, hospitality is one of those things that that man should be known for. We also mentioned the fact that in 1 Timothy 5, uh, Paul is talking about the kind of widow who could be taken on into the, to the church, the church can support. Only certain kind of widows could be taken on to the roles and uh, the widow that would qualify had to be of a certain age and also a certain spiritual qualities, one of them being someone who had, was known for hospitality. 1 Timothy 5.10. All of these New Testament laws, though, are rooted in the Old Testament law. Here are a few. Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Exodus 22, verse 21. Or again, Leviticus 19. If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. Or one more. Talking about God, it says, He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Notice that in all three of those, as, as the Lord exhorts his people to, to not mistreat strangers, to clothe them, to love them, to treat them as, as themselves, to love them as themselves, uh, the, the reasoning is over and over again because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. This is Old Testament gospel logic. You were strangers, you were brought out, so how can you treat other strangers any differently than you've been treated. You were foreigners. You were, you were not accepted by the Egyptians. You were persecuted by the Egyptians. Don't act like an Egyptian. Act like your God. Their God had come and delivered them out of Egypt and says, so you be a deliverer. You be a redeemer. You be one who is like your God, who rescues those who have no legal 
recourse. Those who have not been cared for and loved well. You go and deliver them as you've been delivered. Perhaps one of the greatest biblical stories of hospitality then is found in the story of Ruth. Where Boaz married Ruth, the Moabitess, a great at great sacrifice to himself for the good and the blessing and the protection of a stranger in the land. Ruth, a Moabitess, was a a foreign widow. And and you really do need to understand the the, the setup of this story. I don't, it's it's a foreign, it's somewhat foreign, speaking of foreign things. Um, The the whole setup of this story is based on a, a law where God, um, it was unique to the nation of Israel, where God provided for uh, an inheritance to be passed on in a situation where a man had died without any male heirs. And the, the Old Testament laws referred to as leveret marriage. And, and it's this idea that a, a brother or a, a near kinsman, a near relative, male relative, might marry a widow, this dead man's widow, and raise up a male heir, in, in place of the dead man. But, but the thing, what that, what that meant though was that basically you would, you would marry this woman and it was a real marriage, but, but then you would invest everything into this person. You would, you would invest in, in the children. You would invest in providing for them. They would be raised up. They would you, you know, pay for their Christian schooling and pay for all the food and all the clothing, send them to college, you know, whatever the ancient Hebrew equivalent of all that was, Right? And so you're investing, you're pouring yourself into this person. They get launched in their career. And all that you sacrificed, all that you gave, you, it all, you, you give it all away. It all becomes the inheritance of that dead man's family. And so it's, it's not just um, a, a really great thing to do. I mean, the marriage is a big enough deal in and of itself. But then... There's this massive investment that you're giving to this relative and then you're just giving it away. This is why at the end of Ruth, remember Ruth shows up at the threshing floor in that really strange sort of proposal scene in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, cast your, your, uh, your robe over me and, and Boaz says, oh, I got it, yeah. I'll do that. But he says, first of all, I've, I've, there's a nearer relative, and I've got I've to take this down to the, to the gate, the city gate. I've got to take it down to the courthouse, and we've got to see if the other guy wants to do it. He's, gotta, he's the closer relative. And so the next day he goes down there, and, and the, the nearer relative is there, and he announces the situation, but he does it in a really clever way. He, he wants to underline exactly what this guy is is not agreeing to, if he, in fact, doesn't agree to it. And so what he says is, there is this land that was left by Elimelech, Ruth's uh, um, father-in-law, who's dead, and his sons now are dead, and there's this land, and, and it needs to be redeemed, and, and, the, and the near relative, the nearer relative, steps right up and says, you bet, I got it, no problem, I got it. I'll take that land, Sure. And then Boaz says, and in the day that you take it, you'll also need to marry Ruth. And suddenly there's a little damper on the guy's enthusiasm. 
Because now it's not just a matter of the land where you can raise food and sell it and so on and all the rest of it, but now you've got to marry the widow and you've got you've to invest in her family and raise up that heir and all the rest of it. And he says, never mind, I can't do that. That would destroy me, he says. And so Boaz says, witnesses, you catch this? Everybody says, yeah, we got it. And he says, I'll take it. I'll marry her. Anybody know, except for my Greyfriar students, who Boaz's mom was? Who was Boaz's mom? You've maybe already read the outline. One of the lesser known genealogical facts of the Bible that really should get a lot more airtime is the fact that Boaz's mom was Rahab the harlot. Remember Rahab? From Jericho? A former prostitute? How did Boaz know how to love strangers? How did Boaz know how to love those from the outside? How did Boaz know how to love notorious sinners? How did Boaz know how to love a stranger sacrificially? Because his mom had been the recipient of that kind of sacrificial love. A man named Salmon or Salmon. We don't know anything about that man except that he married Rahab the harlot and they had a son named Boaz. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that beautiful? There's actually quite a bit more to the whole story. I mean, do you remember who the Moabites were. It's, it's, even, it's even worse and even better. The, the, the Moabites are a nation that were descended, uh, the, there was a man named Moab who was one of the sons of the incestuous union uh, of the daughters of Lot with their father, Genesis 19. And then Sexual sin continued in the family. They were known for sexual perversion and sin. Remember that uh, Balaam in Numbers was hired to curse Israel and God thwarted that. But right after that, the women of Moab successfully seduced many of the men of Israel. So uh, apparently a pretty large number of Israelite men uh, started sleeping with, committing sexual sin with the women of Moab. Numbers 25 verse 1, bringing God's curse in the form of a severe plague that was only averted by the well-aimed javelin of Phineas. Numbers 25. Likewise, it was during the days of the judges that Eglon, king of Moab, was oppressing Israel. And remember, God raised up Ehud, a judge, who snuck into the king's 
palace and assassinated King Eglon, king of Moab. So to hold all this together, it was within living memory that many Israelite men had gone to the Moabite red light district. And it was within living memory that many Israelite men had, uh, uh, the Israelites had been oppressed by the Moabites via King Eglon. The Moabites are known for sexual perversion, incest, etc. And it was in those days, during the judging of the judges, that a destitute Moabite widow woman shows up in Bethlehem. There would have been plenty of talking going on around town. And a certain bit of that talking was wise and godly talking. What kind of woman is this? We know about the Moabite women. We know their reputation. And yet very quickly, word was spread that this woman was very different. By the time that she was talking with Boaz, Boaz will even explain, I've heard about you. I know your reputation. It's way different than all the other Moabite women we've heard about. You've loved your mother-in-law. You've come here to join us. You've left your gods behind because you want to worship the Lord God of Israel. But it was still a, a dicey looking situation. But Boaz still knew what to do. Add to this specific story a broader theme that we see throughout the Old Testament. One of the famous warnings that runs through the Old Testament but is specifically picked up in the book of Proverbs is from Solomon regarding the strange woman, the foreign woman, the strange woman. Here's a couple of passages. Proverbs 2 says uh, he's, he's urging his son to, to put on wisdom, to grasp wisdom. And he says, the reason why is it will deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flatters with her words, which forsakes the guide of her youth and forgetteth the covenant of her God. Proverbs 2, 16 and 17, or another in Proverbs 5 for the lips of a strange woman drop as honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Watch out for the stranger, the strange woman, the foreign woman, the Moabite woman, who would seek to lead you astray. She's a sweet talker. She flatters you but she's leading you astray. You note here that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it routinely uses two different words for strangers. I know there's probably at least one Hebrew nerd here. So I'm just going to tell you, I'm a Hebrew nerd too, so that's not, that's not a put down. But there are two words used in Hebrew for, for stranger or foreigner that's frequently translated in the English, and, and one of them means something more like sojourner, 
and one is more like a foreigner, like pagan, outsider, watch out. And so there's a little bit of a distinction in the Hebrew that our English doesn't tell us. It uses stranger and stranger. But in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers are actually comfortable using the same word for both realities, inviting this comparison. So even though in the Old Testament there's a, a word difference between a sojourner, someone traveling in your district, somebody visiting your land, and a pagan stranger, someone to be aware of, the, the New Testament word blends that to some extent, I think, inviting us to say there's a reason why it's okay to translate them both as stranger and, and you need to be able to tell which is which. Is this the kind of stranger I run from, stranger danger? Or is this the kind of stranger that I need to welcome and love and clothe and feed? Which is it? King Solomon knew from personal experience the dangers of the strange woman. This is from 1 Kings 11. It says, but King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites. It's the women. The Moabite women again. The Ammonites, the Edomites, the Dizonians, Hittites of the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you. For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. But Solomon clave unto these in love, and his wives turned away his heart. And so when Solomon says, my son, beware of the strange woman, the foreign woman, the pagan woman, her, the end is death, the end is wormwood, it's a two-edged sword, watch out, run away, don't marry them, they will turn your heart away, Solomon knew what he was talking about. We see the same principle repeat, repeated in the New Testament. This is in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath, the righteous, hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, I will walk in them, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Notice there, Paul is quoting the very way that, that God identified Israel. I will dwell with you and you will be my people. That was the basis then in the, for the Israelite law. Do not intermarry with the nations. Do not make covenants with the nations. Do not be friendly and buddy-buddy with the nations. They will turn you aside. Paul quotes the same principle and says, this is now true of you, church, Christians. God now dwells in you. You are the temple of living God. So come out from among them and be separate. Or James 4 Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4.4. 4. <laughs> so do you feel the tension yet? 
So on the one hand, God urges his people, love the stranger, welcome the stranger, feed the stranger, clothe the stranger. And on the other hand, God repeatedly warns about being assimilated to the ways of strangers. It's, it's, not a, it's not supposed to be a two-way street. It's a one-way. Y'all are welcome in here, worshiping our God, serving our God, leaving your ways behind, your gods behind, your cultures behind, but we're not coming there with you. Do you see that? Which again, I think, underlines that it's not an accident that in Hebrews 13, the text that I read at the beginning, Paul says, be given to hospitality. Remember those in prison and those who are suffering affliction, but let the marriage bed be honored among all, and fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I don't know about you, but I've read that passage many times and thought, okay, this is the miscellaneous grab bag section. Paul's like, hey, what did I miss? Okay, fornication, yeah, love the stranger, visit prisoners, no adultery. <laughs> I don't think so. This is, not the, this is not the junk drawer, all the leftover stuff miscellaneous exhortations section. This is Paul saying, look, this is the deal. This is what comes with the territory. If you sign up for math problems, if you sign up for math class, you have math problems. If you sign up for hospitality, you're going to have particular temptations to fornication and adultery, physical and spiritual. You try to be friends with those who need Jesus, You've got to be on guard because they want you to join them. And you're going to think, well, I'm not joining them. I'm just being friendly to them. And James says, if you want to be a friend of the world, then you're already an enmity with God. You're already an enemy of God. You say, but Jesus was a friend of sinners. Yes, he was. He still is. Jesus was and is a friend of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors precisely because he refuses to be drawn into their sin and he insists on them leaving their sin behind. He says to the woman caught in adultery, where are your accusers? They're gone. Then neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. He holds both those things together. This is Christian hospitality. This is the gospel embodied in love for the strangers. It is a welcome sign. You are welcome to leave your sin behind and come. You are most welcome to leave your gods behind and come. You're most welcome to leave your lifestyles of sin and wickedness and rebellion behind and come. But you are not welcome to bring those things with you. We invite you warmly to the table of the Lord, but it's the Lord's table and he is at war 
with all of our sin, with all of our rebellion, with all of our lies, with all of our hypocrisy. See, I think frequently we have this, this hope that somehow we can have this neutral area where we can meet unbelievers on, a neutral ground where we're just, we're just human beings. Sometimes you'll actually hear people talk this way. There's a common humanity in us all. And of course, there's truth to that. We're all made in the image of God, but because of the fall, there's no neutral ground. There's an antithesis that runs through it all, and so there's no place in this world you can meet just as humans. Where we're just affirming common humanity. No, you can't. Now, there are what we might call common grace realities. A, a non-Christian can do really good brain surgery sometimes. And praise God for that. And I can take my car to a pagan and he'll fix it. But he's still at war with God. He's still at war with God. He's still at war with Jesus. He's still at war with the truth. God in his common grace restrains that evil so that we, all of us, are not as evil as we could be. But the antithesis still runs through the whole thing. There's no place where you can say we're just affirming common humanity. As soon as you say that, as soon as you try to carve out this neutral ground where we're just affirming our common humanity, you've lost. Because you've denied a fundamental truth, which is that either you're for Jesus or against him. Now, I'm not saying you don't talk to unbelievers. No, you've got, we, we're, we're Christians. You've got to talk to them. You gotta invite them into your home. You gotta go out and find them. But you have to go out and find them and you have to welcome them and you have to love them knowing that you're at war with their fundamental loyalties. My point again is not that you can't talk about things that God has given them in common grace. You're a car mechanic, you can talk to an unbelieving car mechanic about fixing cars. You can go out and shoot guns with some guy who doesn't believe in Jesus and you can talk about how your gun works and how your shooting's going or, or you, know, all, you know, shopping or any number of things that, yes, God in his common grace gives us, but you must not say that somehow you found a neutral ground. You haven't. And, and, this, and this is the point, that the fundamental thing that unbelievers need, non-Christians need, is Jesus. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves, we're to do good to all men, we're to be kind to all men, we're to be good neighbors and so forth. But we really haven't loved them. We really haven't shown them Christian hospitality until we've introduced them to Jesus. There, again, the temptation, I think, the tendency is to say, well, I'm, I'm getting there. Well, I, okay, I get it. I know that sometimes um, that particular moment is not the moment. But you need to know that you haven't actually given them what they need yet. 
They need Jesus. They need to be turned from an enemy into a friend through the mercy of Jesus. It'd be sort of like showing up with a, at, a, at a side of the road, somebody's broken down with a flat tire, and you, you walk up to them and just say, man, I just love your car. It's such a great car. And you're from, you're from Alaska? I'm from Alaska. I saw your plates. That's just awesome. Right? And, oh, man, just like how you, you know, the way you keep your car clean, it's really nice. Yeah, yeah. Look at the sunset. Isn't it just great today? All right, well, have a great one. Good to see you. Bye. And you drive off. And there they are, sitting there with their jack in hand, trying to figure out what just happened. <laughs> like you, you were nice to them, you were kind to them, you were friendly to them, and you didn't do the very thing they needed, which is you to help them put the spare tire on. Right? That's what they needed. That's what non-Christians need. They are enemies of God. They are our enemies for the sake of the gospel. And so we are called to love them, do good to them, so that they will surrender to their king. And these principles have a number of applications in a number of different directions. You could talk about entertainment. Are you, how, how do you think about entertainment? Friendship, we've been talking about. Uh, can you learn from pagans? Can, can, can pagans teach us anything? Yes, they can. But how do we approach that? How do we approach those kinds of classes or those kinds of courses? Evangelism, we've been talking about. In the early church, one of the images the church fathers used to describe how Christians should interact with pagan culture was the, the war bride uh, image in Deuteronomy 21. So the early church fathers used this image as a way of describing how Christians should interact with the unbelieving culture around them. In Deuteronomy 21, God prohibited men from acting on impulse in the middle of war, as is, a common, as is very common in pagan warfare and is becoming more common again as we leave behind our Christian values. Uh, but in, in pagan warfare, it was common for there to be uh, men acting on their lusts and grabbing women in the middle of the war. And so God prohibited that, so that's against the law, that's not acceptable. And so he required that if a man uh, saw a woman among the captives that he wanted to marry, she could be brought home with him, uh, she was to shave her head, trim her nails, put off the clothing of her captivity, and then be allowed to mourn for a full month before he was allowed to marry her. The church fathers said this was a good analogy for thinking about how we sort through the pagan cultures around us. Okay? 30-day waiting period, shave the head, change the clothes, trim the nails. Right? There, is, there, is it possible that there would be a beautiful woman that a godly man might want to marry and bring in? Yes, it's possible. But you can't just do it on a whim. You can't do it thoughtlessly. You can't do it impulsively. She, she's got to be transformed. She's got to be changed. 
And the church fathers thought this was a particularly good image because of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. What are we doing with the gospel? We're casting down strongholds. We're at war with unbelief. And what are we doing? We're taking captive every thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So every thought that needs to be taken captive needs to be brought home and isolated for 30 days and shaved and trimmed and, un- and re- redressed. That's how we take captive every thought. So that it obeys Jesus Christ. The strange woman needed to be naturalized or assimilated into Israel. And this can't be done impulsively or thoughtlessly. She must leave behind her pagan gods and cleave to the God of Israel. She must wear the righteousness of Jesus. She must repent of her sins. She must be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Like Rahab. Like Ruth. So that then we can marry them. Just a quick caution and encouragement as we close. Remember that it is a fundamental Christian responsibility to provide for those of your own household. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that, uh, that you must provide for your own household, and anyone who doesn't provide for their own household has rejected the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's a fundamental duty. This, this gospel love, this gospel hospitality is embodied and enacted, first of all, in our own homes. And to refuse to do that with your wife and children, to refuse to do that with your own family, Paul says, is to abandon the faith, is to reject the faith. And you're worse than an unbeliever because you know better. You know Jesus. You know how he's loved you. And you're required by God to love those closest to you in the same way. Many Christians, in the name of mercy ministry and hospitality, sacrifice marriages and children on the altar to this strange God. But the first rule of Christian hospitality is to create no new orphans or widows or strangers. The first rule of Christian hospitality is create no new orphans, widows, or strangers. Meaning you must not allow for your family to become functional orphans, widows, or strangers. You're always having people over, but are your children being welcomed to your table? You're always going out and finding people. But have you found your own wife, your own husband, your own children? Or have you estranged them? In other words, the first strangers you are called to feed and clothe and love are the ones who live in your own house. The encouragement is that as you do this well, your family will thrive spiritually and will be practiced in hospitality and ready to give to those in need. It is not something fundamentally different. Loving those in your own home is done rightly is just practicing for welcoming more people in. And as you do that well, it's not a big deal to add two more people or five more people or 15 more people because you've been doing it already. The ground of all this is the gospel of Jesus. Remember these words from Ephesians 2. Why did Jesus come? 
Jesus came that he might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But how did Jesus love you? He, he pulled you out of the mire. He pulled you out of the grave. He didn't let you cling to those old ways. He brought you home. He washed you off. He clothed you with new royal garments. He fed you at his table and made you leave all the old stuff behind. That's Christian hospitality. That's the love of the stranger, where we don't leave people in the mire. We insist that they come out and they come home with us because that's what Jesus has done for us. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you that you sent Jesus into the far country for us. You sent him into the far country of this world. He left his home behind. He became homeless. He became a stranger. He became hungry. He became friendless in order to meet us in our homelessness, in our estrangement, in our hunger, in our shame. Father, I pray that we would be a people who love others like that. And Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to love those right in front of us, those closest to us like that, so that what we have to give, what we have to share, would be real Christian hospitality. We ask this in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray. Amen. This table is God's sign of hospitality to us and all men. The word calls us to this table. The gospel calls us to fellowship with God and one another. It calls us to reconciliation in Jesus through his broken body and shed blood for our sins. But this table is the Lord's table. We call it the Lord's Supper. This is not your table. This is not my table. This table does not belong to CCD or Christ Church or the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches or Reformed Presbyterians in general. It belongs to Jesus. This means that everyone Jesus welcomes into fellowship with him is welcome here. We do not have the right to fence our table more strictly than Jesus because it is not our table. So who may come to this table? All who have been baptized and profess faith in Jesus alone for their salvation and are not under church discipline. If you are a baptized believer and you have been walking in unconfessed sin, you still must come. But you must come and lay your sin down. If you come in hypocrisy, the Lord of this table promises to deal with you. You cannot come intending to continue in your sin, intending to cover up your sin, and then leave here under the blessing of God. And if you really aren't sure, I would urge you, talk to me or one of the other elders about your situation. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus welcomes sinners to his table. You do not need to wait until you're all cleaned up to come to this table. You do not need to go figure everything out before you can come. Jesus is the only way to be cleaned up. Jesus is the only way to untangle the knots of our sin. And Jesus is here. Do you want to be clean?
Then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Do you want the sin in your life untangled and put right? Then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Do you want to learn how to love strangers around you rightly and with wisdom? Then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you sent your son Jesus, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, so that you might bring us home to you. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your great hospitality to us in Jesus. And we give you thanks in his name. And amen. amen. You are the people of God. You've met with your God this morning. He's welcomed you to his house. He's fed you at his table. He rejoices over you. He loves you. And he says, leave your sin here. You can't take it with you. It's gone. It's done. Now go and love like you've been loved. Rejoice as you've been rejoiced over. Clothe as you've been clothed. Feed as you've been fed. This is the hospitality of your God. And go with his blessing now. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen.